Welcome to the Homegrown Podcast, a place where we share the truth about food and farming from our kitchen to yours. I'm your host, Liz Hazelmeyer, along with my husband, Joey. Good afternoon. And together we hope to educate, inspire, and equip you in your pursuit of true nourishment. Today we're sitting down with Michael Kilpatrick. Michael is a farmer and educator who is passionate about equipping farmers with the tools and systems they need to thrive. He is the host of the Thriving Farmer Podcast and leads virtual summits in an online community called the Small Farm University. Michael also runs his own farm operation with his wife Savannah and their three children at the Farm on Central in Southwest Ohio. Michael, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited because the way this all kind of unfolded is one, we didn't even know we were so close. We're like driving distance. We're like 45 yeah. minutes apart. Joey and I were like, let's pack up the equipment, go record in person. Um, but the whole reason this came apart came about is because I was sharing on social media about the cost of specifically raw dairy, but just in general, like how much food costs impacts both the consumer, but then because we always want cheap, cheap, cheap food. Mm-hmm. But then we hear the farmer's side and they're like, I'm not making any money. There's, this isn't a profitable business for me. There's that famous quote that's like, we're the only people that buy retail, retail and sell wholesale. Yeah, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And then... Savannah messaged me and she was like, you know, you should really talk to my husband because his whole mission is around helping farmers um, be profitable. And I was like, that's amazing. Here's the Calendly link. Let's get it on the book. So I'm really excited to talk about this concept today because I think it's a common misconception about either you're growing really intentionally without the use of synthetic pesticides and herbicides and you're doing all these things to try to like build soil health, but it's at the cost of your profits. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk about and really break kind of break that down and see where um, what are the lies we've been believing and, and how can maybe we encourage people in that space? I dig it. Yeah. Um, and I think even just a good place to start would be maybe even before we get into that is to talk about regenerative farming. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And I know we've talked about it a ton on this podcast before. But maybe we start there to kind of in case people are this is your first time listening or um, you, know, you haven't heard of this term regenerative farming before. Let's start there. Let's start. You know, Michael, if you want to, you know, kind of talk about how you got into farming in the first place and then we can mm-hmm. kind of get into some of this idea of regenerative farming and then from there maybe talk about some of the profitability that, yeah. that we can find within it. Love that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So my farming journey really started back when I was probably probably eight or nine. I had always been interested in being my hands in the dirt and doing, you know, things like I, I my mom has a picture of me with slugs all over my hands. <laughs> so, yes. um, yeah, there's that. Um, and, uh, so we started gardening with my dad back in Westfield when we lived there in outside of Springfield, Massachusetts. And I remember my mom's, my dad saying to my mom, well, she told me this afterwards. She said, he's like, he was shaking his head and he was like so frustrated because he's like, I have no idea what I'm doing out there, but the boys are really excited about it so I want to do it with them and uh, we have some pictures and I actually have them here in the office of of one of our first harvests and my dad literally because he didn't have any dirty clothes because he was a doctor he had old scrubs from you know green scrubs from when he was in the operating theater and you know that's what he wore out to gardening with us um, you know, since then they've had much better upgrades to uh, <laughs> the farming uh, cho- farm uh, cloth choice cloth choices. But uh, that's kind of like the back. That was way back. Um, yeah. And then we moved to upstate New York when I was 13 because my parents were like, we want out of the suburbia. 
and mm -hmm. Y2K was happening. And so they were like, let's just get on our own piece of land. Mm -hmm. So we started up there and really we had no clue. We made every mistake in the book at least once, if not twice. And we were fortunate to have really good mentors. And uh, I would say that is the most important thing that someone looking to get into farming is really have a solid mentor who's done it before and who has a track of profitability. And we were super lucky to not get one, but two. Mm. Our first one was excellent on the production side and he was a past Cornell um, agricultural, basically, uh, basically expert. And mm. uh, he was able to give us the growing side. And then we met our, our, our more long-term mentors, the Arnolds, and they were experts in the business side of farming. Uh, because, and I think one of the important things that they said to me was, Michael, first you need to be a marketer, then a business person, and finally you're a farmer. Because wow. that is the, it's a flipped paradigm of where we actually, what we actually are. Because like any other business, a farm is a business. And we first have to think about it from a business point of view, you know, the profitability, our margins, all of that. And I think, you know, when we talk about this regenerative side of things is a lot of it's a passion side because we get so excited about healing the earth and, you know, sequestering carbon. But we have to also look at how does that pencil out? Because without profit, a farm is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. and, and profitability is the biggest aspect of being sustainable because if you just don't have any more money to put in on your compost, you're out of business or you don't have no money to feed the cows, you're out of business. Mm -hmm. And so that's one, one thing that uh, definitely was instilled upon me from them. I think, you know, as the longer I've been in this, the more I've gone down the uh, trail and the journey of more and more regenerative because when we started, you know, we were, you know, using a lot of compost and, you know, this first year or two, we did have a few other things which we, you know, we wouldn't be using now, but now we are going more and more deep into, you know, what is regenerative and how do we leave that planet better for our kids? Because I think that's the part, a big part of it too, is because organic is not what it used to be. Organic is now, you can use um, hydroponics and you can use, um, you know, the CAFOs are now supposedly organic. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but that's not organic. And yeah. so we really have to be able to look at what is true organic. A, you're making the soil better than you found it. B, you're supporting the farm family and the workers on the land because that's another huge aspect that's not being talked about is the living and working conditions of the, the people, actually the farmers. Because mm. I would say there's more, there's more farmers that are of you know, Latino descent that are from south of the border than there are in the U.S., at least on large-scale farms, because literally it's it's usually whole groups of them that are actually harvesting most of what's in the in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. That you make a great point, and that's so often left out is the um, it's, it goes beyond just like fair wage, right? It's uh -huh. it's it's so much more beyond that. And I think even when we were talking with the Real Organic Project, that they rope that in too. Mm -hmm. They talk about how it's it's this this whole encompassed picture of what organic was really meant to be. So I love that you touched on that. I was laughing when you said hydroponics because we went on a it's, rant oh my gosh. about yeah. hydroponics and just it's it's allowance in organics and how it doesn't really line up with the true spirit of what that means. Yeah. So I'm interested what kind of has inspired you to lean into this whole regenerative movement aside from, you know, maybe it is the motivation of your kids, but is there anything else? Or are there any other factors that have kind of brought you into having this mindset that, mm -hmm. 
um, inspired that. Yeah, well, I think one of my early influences was Polyface Farm down in Virginia. Oh, cool. um, I saw a Smithsonian article that was shared with us by our egg lady at the time. And she says, oh, there's this really cool farm. You really got to check out what they're doing. And I mean, I must have read that article probably 60 times, you know, just wow. pouring over those pictures in there and just like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. Because I'd always wanted to be a farmer, but I'd always been told you couldn't be a farmer because it was, you know, that's what the, that's what the dumb people did, as it mm. were. And again, they don't use those exact words, but hey, if you don't, you know, keep your grades up, you'll be a farmer. <laughs> um, so you pretty much say it without saying it. But, um, you know, so it, I think the thing is, is the farmers, especially regenerative farmers, are some of the smartest people out there because not only are they, um, not only are they running a, a, you know, multi-species, and again, they're species above ground and below ground, as well as, you know, a business, a marketing business, a production business, fulfillment, all of those things happen on a farm if you are running, you know, going direct to consumer. If you're, you know, a thousand acre almond farm, that's very different. Obviously there you have a lot more capital tied up and a lot more big equipment, a lot more systems in place. But if you're a small scale regenerative farm, you are working in these micro chasms of all the different things in business that need to be done. And you it struggles to get efficient at any one of them. Mm. I mean, we technically have an HR department, but it's like two hours a week and we struggle to get, you know, what we really like to see mm -hmm. in an employee manual because there's the time to sit down and actually write that. And so we yeah. onboard a new team member yeah. Oh, you forgot that again. You forgot to tell them how this works. And so then a mistake is made. And then, you know, again, it's you fix it and move on. But it's just one more thing because of the scale of that small regenerative farm. I think it's so I'm so happy you said this because <laughs> there have been so many farmers like that we've brought onto this podcast that we've talked to. And it started to feel like I was this weird judgmental person. <laughs> when in reality, it has nothing to do with it because I kept commenting on the show how often I'm blown away at how intelligent these farmers are. I mean, it, mm -hmm. you you roll into this situation like, hey, we're bringing so-and-so on, he's a farmer. I'm thinking like, okay, you know, and then I walk out of the thing like, I'm an idiot. This guy is, <laughs> or gal is so smart. Holy smokes, I, I am, I, you know, I'm trying to do my thing over here, running businesses, and I have so much to learn from these people. And it's exactly what you said. It's it's equal parts like science, like biology, herbology. Like they, they have to understand like like the chemistry mm -hmm. of what's going into the soil, the chemistry makeup that we're they're, they're talking they're telling me about like nitrogen levels, and I'm like, oh my goodness gracious! When we had uh, uh, Royal Dairy Farm mm -hmm. uh, Austin Austin on, and he was telling me about how he's converting you know worms into the the things he was doing. Yeah, like you're not even talking at that point about science, un like understanding of science, but also just innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean this guy could have made it in. Um, you know silicon valley if he had chosen a different uh, yeah a different yeah. career path and that's that's it's just it's outstanding how, how i agree with you how smart these people are well you mentioned nitrogen but nitrogen is not just nitrogen there's nitrates there's ammonium there's actually yes it goes it's the rabbit hole it just goes so deep <laughs> um, i love it yeah and i don't even think i know if i finished the question you actually asked so i apologize if i didn't um, what was the question? You were asking about inspiration, getting into regenerative farming. Oh. He said he had oh, yeah. mentioned polyphase. Yeah. I think that was absolutely a great answer. Anything mm -hmm. else? Yeah, absolutely. So obviously I'm a person of faith and in, in the Bible, we're talked to, talked to, told to steward the earth. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's about leaving the soil better than we found it and everything better than we found it. And unfortunately, for some reason, the mainstay or mainstream uh, Christianity has just said, well, the earth is the earth and we're going to just abuse it. And that's what it feels like. <laughs> 
Uh, unfortunately, that is, I feel like that is in some aspects getting better. I do see some changes there. I've seen a few books come out lately about that, but that mm. is, is a big thing behind why we are focused on regenerative and is making it as best as we can. But again, obviously kids, I have three kids now. And again, my goal is I, I, I do not want to be that parent that my children die before me. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's becoming more and more frequent. I mean, I don't want to get that dark, that drastic, but there is that aspect. If you think about it, you see that and you're just like, yeah. oh my gosh, how does that happen? But part of it happens because of the environment our children are being raised in. I mean, the toxicity, yeah. um, the stress levels, and I think that's obviously something we don't talk about a lot, but, um, and then the food too, the, the nutrient density of the food. I think we have to realize that most of the food we consume these days is half as, as nutritious as it was 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. This brings me to the point on your website, you have 100% uh, kids safe certified. I love that you like use that uh -huh. lingo. Can you kind of explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So that was, you know, obviously we were looking at organic and how that looks and, and obviously we don't agree with some of the aspects there, but kids safe to us was something about not only you know, not using pesticides and herbicides, but also the side of we want our kids to be able to be around us on the farm. So we don't mm. want super dangerous things going on. And it's interesting because actually we kind of came up with that phrase and we were, you know, putting it out there to our customers. And then like four weeks later, we had a semi little accident on the farm where one of my kids got their hand pinched in a piece of equipment. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, we just started talking about this and then this happened. And so obviously... Daddy had made a bad choice about what kids should be allowed to do because they were very excited about doing something with daddy. But we also talked about, you know, my wife and I were like, okay, so obviously being a part of that process on the farm isn't something the kids can be a part of, but also it's like, okay, so what processes should we be using? So again, I don't think we've completely hundred percent dove into what that should be because obviously on a farm, equipment's necessary. You know, mm -hmm. tractors are somewhat necessary. And there are farms that do everything with human power. But we're also looking at the aspect of sustainability is to the um, aspect of the human body too. And we don't want my body by the time I'm 40 with a blown back mm -hmm. and broke. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, there are farms out there like that, especially when you're doing the human power. You're basically using your body as the tool. Mm -hmm. And we're in the 21st century. There's tools out there that I think are way better to be you know, effective for those kinds of things. So that was one of the things we're thinking about too is, you know, we need equipment, but how do we make sure that, you know, we can be around all of that? Mm, I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I want to circle back to this concept you mentioned be right before this where your faith has influenced your approach to the environment. And this is actually something I think about a lot. And I, I often think like, why aren't more people connecting those two dots? If you are a person of faith and you do believe that um, we are beautifully and intentionally made, one, mm -hmm. shouldn't we be treating our bodies a certain way? And two, shouldn't we be respecting the environment around us? Every, this is why like, it is the bane of my existence that we like serve goldfish and animal crackers in Sunday school. No, like, no, first no, of it's all, the Kool-Aid. We got to be worried about the Kool-Aid. <laughs> Are they also serving that too? Like, I don't yes. even know. I, I just, I can't, I can't understand yes. why, why yeah. the, you know, modern American church hasn't caught on yet. But I would love your thoughts on this, even just to go a little bit further. And then if you know any of the book names, because that was the first thought that came oh, to my head. Oh, I think it's over on my shelf. I can't, it was, I read it a while ago. Um, but it was, yeah, I, 
I can follow up with that. But okay, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. But I, what, what I would say about the two things, two things for me is one, well, God created it. He can take care of it. So that I think is a lie that we believe. And um, the second one, again, not to oversimplify, but then the second one is, well, you know, I'm, what I'm doing is sacred work and God will take care of me. You know, if uh, unfortunately, I don't believe that way. I believe that, you know, yes, God is omnipotent, omnipotent and all of that, but we still have to make the right choices in our life. You know, if I drive my car off a cliff, yeah, the gravity is going to take over. So, uh, you know, I think that aspect, and I think you see way too many people in ministry, you know, they're, you know, they're running from one thing to the next thing, the next thing. And they're like, well, I'm working so hard. I'm going to cheat and, you know, have the, the McDonald's or have the, you know, this or that. Um, and it's not, it's not helpful. It's not mm. helpful to go through life suffering yourself uh, because you're serving all these other people. Um, I think there needs to be those 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 boundaries put in place, and also thinking about the long term sustainability of yourself. Yeah, I think it's possible with some of the farming practices potentially, and and also with some of the things we eat. There may be very I'm going to call it innocent ignorance in a sense sometimes. Totally. Uh, maybe yeah. I'm playing the, the the defensive card here a little bit for some people out there. Um, hey, I, like I'm a farmer, and I'm you know taking dominion over this of, of the earth, and I'm, I'm cultivating it to be productive. And I, like you said, Michael, I'm working. Uh-huh. And these these things, these inputs that I'm putting into the ground are the best way I know how to be good at what I do. Mm-hmm. And, no, you're and in that sense, right. you know, they're they're doing their thing. Yeah, and then no. on the food side, there I truly believe, truly believe there are people in the world that they wake up in the morning, and, and this is this is again. I don't even I don't even judge because I've been there, uh-huh. and they, uh-huh. and they're and they're thinking, hey, I want to nourish my family the best way I possibly can, and they can make you know like a sugar filled waffle with syrup, and be like, eh. it wasn't like, a pop tart or pop tarts right or toaster strudels or yeah. and they're feeding breakfast. It's like they're providing. They're they're and in that sense, right? There's ignorance is bliss, right? Because. Totally. They yeah, still know. and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And again, I feel like I oversimplified it there with those two things because I, I think there's so many people out there that have the absolute best meanings. I mean, like yes. I say this about government agents. There's a lot of lovely people out there in government that have no clue what they're doing. They couldn't hack it. Again, that that's the strong word. They weren't best suited for the business world, so they ended up going into government. Um, and they were able to make it there. Um, where the default is um, we're not going to make a decision and we're just going to punt it a little bit further down the road. Again, mm-hmm. I, I speak pretty strongly sometimes. I don't have a lot of patience for people in government, even though I am in government myself now. Um, <laughs> but uh, but going back to that whole thing, yes, there are people out there who, again, they are the absolute best meaning. But also, I think they are believing what they are told. So if mm-hmm. the government or somebody says, hey, you know, a waffle has fiber in it. Totally. And yes. this uh, this sugary syrup, it has vitamin C. And, um, you know, milk has calcium. And so they don't get, they don't hear the aspect of, yeah, that milk's been pulled apart in 16 different t- places. It's been irradiated. It's been pushed back together. It has synthetic this, 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 and this in it. And it's not raw. And, and they've also been told to, again, this is, I think, something in the Christian world, which is very problematic is we are to respect authority. Mm. And then, you know, the government is authority. And so we're supposed to listen to when the government tells us that, you know, sugars are better than fats 
And what we find out, you know, 40 years later is that that was literally a decision was made. Do we demonize fat or we demonize sugar? And it was came down to who had the most dollars to spend on the lobbying. Yes. Okay. I want, I'm so happy you said that. So much of this interview is I'm just like, yes, Michael. Do we give him like words to say before we recorded? Because you're just like I've saying got these everything. talking points down below the screen. <laughs> this is going to all seem so staged. There's a teleprompter it's, going. It's not. Okay. So I had this message um, earlier this week in my DMs. And it's literally this exact thing. And this this sweet, sweet woman was like, I am really praying and, and trying to thoughtfully consider our family switching to raw dairy. But I cannot wrap my head around why the CDC and FDA are so against it and why there's all of this conflicting evidence. And how am I, as a believer, supposed to navigate when I see one expert opinion saying this and then a totally different expert opinion saying the exact opposite thing? And my recommendation was I basically gave her like a bunch of of books to read, which probably wasn't super helpful because she might not have time for that. But I was like the history will paint a broad picture of why some of these agencies are saying it this way. I think um, the books I gave her, by the way, were The Untold Story of Milk, The Raw Uh Milk Revolution, um, Dissolving Illusions, just three. They're even like right there on my bookshelf. But I would love to hear your input, Michael, of this concept of, okay, this exact thing. We're supposed to believe the authority. Why is the authority telling us all this information? But then we have all these like other people, maybe in the holistic health world that are giving us completely different uh-huh. science. And I, and I know some of it comes down to industry and funding and all of that, but what do you, what's your take on that? How, how do you encourage people in that yeah. space? Well, I think too recently and not to go off another rabbit trail, but very recently we we're always told we'll follow the science and trust the experts. But what we don't have to also, and I would like to add to that, follow the money and read the reports Um, Mm. because what we realize when you follow the money is you see where the money is going and Mm. who why they just say liars um, uh, something about liars figure or something like that numbers don't lie but liars figure and what we have realized is that you can take reports and you can chop the report or you can use selected data and again depending on what studies you're reading you see how they do this every single time with different things and i think you have to realize that a the government is always going to be as safe as safe as possible because they are liable and they mm-hmm. have to get elected again so if something goes wrong and they are they they're the ones that gets you know out to the curb and so they want to protect their job and so there's afraid. And when you're afraid, you boil and irradiate and you uh, microwave and you do all these things and you, you try to shut down small food operations because when you have big food operations, it's easier to keep track of them all. Mm-hmm. So I think first we have to look at their goal is to be, again, too safe. I th- there's a funny story that I, I believe it was one of our podcast guests that shared with me or maybe I think it was a farm I visited where she was using a wooden cheese vat. And the flavor of her cheese came from that, and she had a crazy following. Well, the government came in and said, well, we want you to use a stainless because wood's no longer safe. Well, she resisted, resisted. She had to move over to, she kept the old vat. Her numbers for um, the bad bacteria were higher in the stainless vat than in the wooden one. And the reason was, was because they actually, in the edges of that wooden vat, again, if you go talked about you know design or all this thing, the the good bacteria were fighting the bad bacteria, and in the stainless vat, only the bad bacteria were actually there. Mm. 
So it, it goes back to that, you know, and it, huh. it, it comes back to FISMA. So over the last 15 years, and I was actually part of one of the pilot projects for FISMA when that was being enacted. And FISMA stands for Food Modernization Act. And the government passed it and they made all farms do all these new hoops. We had to do record keeping and the safety and all this stuff. 15 years later, we still have the exact same amount of food uh, outbreaks. And they, we haven't gotten any better, even though we spent literally millions and millions of dollars. And we still can't disagree on what is safe and what is not. Yeah. So I, I don't know if we answer that. I mean, part of, going back to the original question, which was, um, you know, why is, how do you, how do you um, reconcile the yeah. fact that we want to, again, be responsible citizens, but we also need to do what's best for our family. Um, and I think always the family comes first. You know, we talk about the greater good or we talk about the good. And I, to me, I'm saying, look, your family is who you interact with every day. Your family who you've been, if you go again, going back to a faith aspect, are responsible for first. Yeah. And then it's everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, to me, we're going to put our family first. Um, but, you know, it's safety. And then I think you have to look at follow the money. And I think we also have to look at history repeats itself. So again, you look at, you know, what's the background, follow the history, why? So we look at unions. Unions came because, again, the massive um, corruption that was happening in Chicago, mainly with the meatpacking trade. Is, and if you read um, Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, which I think every person should read just to realize how bad it was. Um, you see why there was a necessary for some of that. But then what you have to realize is fast forward of what is it, 80, 90 years, many of those have been abused, of those powers yeah. have been abused. Um, and I, I hear local stories from lo people locally just in the unions and just absolutely how the unions are as bad as what they replaced. Mm. Um, and I think we also have to look at in this too, we have to always consider that there is evil. And mm -hmm. it comes in many different forms. And again, I'm not saying that necessarily everyone out there on that side are evil, but I think we have to look at that greed is something that is in the human and that there is a lot of that happening as well. So again, I don't mean to like go off in this whole, try to um, spiritualize it, but I think we have to look at there are bad people and bad people do bad things. And it may not be, you know, the aspect of, you know, stealing money and, and, and cheat it, but it will be fudging the numbers or making sure that they stay in, in power or making sure that they um, keep their lobby um, in, in, uh, and keep the product going through the marketplace. Or mm -hmm. push an agenda that might not Absolutely. be in your best interest. interest. So, yeah. Um, wow, that's outstanding. And I, I told, any, anything else on that? No, I mean, it's for, for raw milk specifically, one of my favorite quotes in uh, the raw milk revolution is and it's not so much a quote as it is an idea but his just explanation of the 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 quote raw milk killers of the past are not at all the reason why we pasteurize today uh -huh. we were concerned with like bovine tuberculosis and other issues within the cow um, or things that the milk could kind of be a breeding ground for that we are not concerned with those anymore. Now it's a different type of foodborne illness of contamination. Mm -hmm. I think when people realize like, oh, that pic that grim picture of the late 1800s is not at all what we're talking about yeah. when we're saying we're consuming raw dairy. So I think I it's key to say, well, why is it, why is it not illegal to give it away? Why is it only illegal to sell it? Yeah. 
And what we have to go back to is the dairy industry trying to protect themselves. And so mm. that's the reason why they don't want raw milk and small farms doing it because they're protecting the um, – because they realize that most farms don't have the infrastructure and money to pasteurize themselves. So that means that they are kept as serfs selling to basically the overlord who is the dairy, you know, Hood and Agrimart and all those big ones. And maybe I oversimplified it and, you know, villainized somebody too much and maybe they're going to come sue me, but I don't care. <laughs> no, that's a great point because the I, I have another post on my account where I say raw milk is not illegal. It's one of my biggest pet peeves when people are like, raw milk's illegal. I'm like, no, owning a dairy cow is not illegal. You can go milk your cow and drink it and serve it to your kids. Mm -hmm. Most people do. Everyone, all the cute little Instagram influencers who have a dairy cow, 99% of them are drinking it raw. Well, I love, normalize it. Continue, mm -hmm. continue the trend. Um, it's the regulation of... Um, distribution and sale that is quote illegal or or legalized in some type of form in various different states if there's a state like california where you can literally walk into a grocery store and buy it off the shelf or new mexico is another example but then there's other states where you can't find it there we should be asking ourselves like wait a minute it's okay on that side of the country but not on this side of the country now canada yeah. there's it's there's no place to buy it correct there's one operating herd share publicly like cooperating with the Canadian government in BC right now. Okay, but, but other than that, you can have a Canada cow. Is you very can have hard. a cow in Canada. And you drink can have milk. a cow in Canada, but you cannot give it to your friends if your friends come over in certain parts of Canada. Like wow. if your friends come over and you, you're, it's illegal to serve them. So the more, milk. more regulated in Canada. Than Way more regulated in Canada. What about well, like? But I UK? mean, Canada's. Yeah, we'll leave it there. <laughs> they're they're going through the ringer a little bit. UK, same thing. I don't know about the UK. Okay. I, I just have friends in. Canada. But we have to look at most of the countries in the US, uh, in the world. A lot of the third world countries, dairy is raw. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, look at a lot of Africa. I mean, they they're not pasteurizing it. Now again, they have a lot of other problems, and maybe they should be in a lot of those aspects because, again, the the amount of diseases and stuff. But in many of those countries, dairy is one of the primary pr sources of proteins and fats. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Other parts of the world. So here's my here's my little summarization of this. Broaden your your understanding of how milk is in the world. Mm -hmm. Look at the history. Follow the money, as Michael said. And then from there, um, continue your research on why mainstream pasteurization is a thing today. And then look at the areas where um, the distribution of milk is legal in some capacity in other states and ask yourself, well, that's interesting. And compare that to the conventional dairy industry. That's all. That's a lot of homework for someone, but it's a big decision to make. I think it's the homework you would do if you were feeling as anxious as this person totally. messaged you that said totally. that they were having yeah. a hard time getting over. Because it's honestly I, all the homework. I did all that homework. I, I can do the reasoning in my head and be like, hmm, okay. I wrote the raw dairy guide from because a, of that. Coming from a cow, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, we can drink that. That's cool. You know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, there's the other aspect of like, well, you know, no other. Uh, mammal drinks the milk of another mammal so you know <laughs> which actually isn't even true because if you've ever stepped foot on a farm you see that the chickens are drinking oh yeah it, you know what i mean like yeah other so, animals other animals drink other people's milk all the time but it doesn't happen naturally i think is what michael's saying yeah. well like i'm just i'm throwing that out there as you know there's all these arguments out there and i think the biggest thing is for people to start looking at the arguments and start saying okay can we shoot holes in this argument which we just did right there um, I think the other thing too is again, you like we've seen this very recently in huge ways is is if everybody in a specific industry is 
piling on a specific thing, really start to pay attention. Yeah. And really look at that person's background. And a lot of the time that person has a very stellar, very um, um, clean, you know, quite accomplished background, but they may have said something or changed something and now are they being vilified because they didn't toe the party line as it were. And so I think that is something that people just need to, you know, again, if someone says, well, this person's wacko, why? Mm-hmm. Go read them, go listen to them, try to understand why they are calling them that. And maybe you'll agree. Okay, yeah, this person's not for me. But a lot of time you realize this, um, I don't know what's going on here, but I actually learned a lot from that person. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's change gears a little bit. Let's start talking about some farming. Mm. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk about poking lies in another, or poking holes in another misconception or lie. I want to talk about this profitabil- profitability aspect and how we can support farmers who need to make money. Because I love what you said earlier about sustain profitability is the number one indicator of sustainability. Because you can mm-hmm. be doing the most for your soil, but if you're not making money, you can't continue. I'd love to start it with my own curiosity. Mm-hmm. Is What are the greatest challenges a farm or a regenerative farm, specifically a regenerative farm, experiences when seeking profitability? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I've got so many. Um, I would say one is actually the science, is we mm. don't know so much. We're learning. I've been in this industry now 19 years, and I feel like a baby all the time. Mm. I feel like there's so much that I don't know. I mean, the most recent thing we've started diving into is water testing and sap testing. Um, there's so much to know. There's so much I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to, you know, our, our, our nutrient people, sometimes 45 minutes at a clip. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I just got a, a massive download from them about, you know, how everything interacts. Um, so I'd say education is a huge aspect. And again, there's some great organizations out there. There's some great aspects, but I would say also is that there is a massive lack of funding for regenerative farming compared to um, other types of farming out there. So I'd say that is a huge aspect. Um, number two is labor is labor is a massive challenge for any farm but specifically regenerative farms because regenerative farms a lot of the times it's not sitting in the air-conditioned cab you know just running you know rows of corn back and forth um and you know yes it'd be a good machine operator but with regenerative farming a lot of it's hot dirty uh even wet work where you're you know pushing, you know, moving the cows in from the pasture, or you are um, hoeing the the green beans in the garden. So -hmm. there's that aspect of just massive aspects of labor. Um, And I think the other thing too, is that a lot of regenerative farm, a lot of the, the other huge challenge there is that the deck is stacked against them. Um, with uh, basically how we do food in the US. Um, Most of the money in the food, because there is a tremendous amount of money made in food, but most of it is made from the grocer or the middleman. And actually, I mean, they think the statistic is 15 cents typically gets back to the farmer and it may be less. Wow. Uh, Another massive statistic we're looking at is only 5% of farms last five years or more. So the, the attrition rate of farms of just, you know, how fast they, they go under. And the problem is when you have that constant change, you're basically meaning you have new people on farmland. And again, it goes back to that education side is they, they're brand new. They don't know what they're doing. And so they're going to be inefficient. Um, and so you've got that aspect of, you know, especially the small regenerative is inefficient. We, we, we hit on that earlier too. I mean, it, it's, let's think about this. If we are um, cultivating a row of carrots, 
do you think it's more efficient to cultivate a thousand foot row or a hundred foot row? Mm. Yeah, thousand. Yeah, and, and but most of these small farms are 50 foot rows or 100 mm-hmm. foot rows. Um, so by the time you get the machinery set up, you're done. And so you've, again, spent all this time and so now you're infinitely less efficient. Um, so I mean, those are the, I think the top three of, you know, of that aspect. Again, we could go into each one of those in depth of, you know, we could talk about labor, we could talk about education, we could talk about size and scale and efficiency. Um, and again, I think that another one, which again, I hate to keep beating on this one, but it is government regulation. Mm-hmm. Is government regulation is strangling many farmers um, because on our farm, where we're profitable is in value added. We do, I mean, yes, we make money on selling lettuce because lettuce is a big one for us, but we make more money on selling salad dressings. We make more money on the value-added prepared salads. Uh, We make way more money on our slushies, our strawberry slushies, which have the actual strawberries on the farm that we make and and put in our shop, than we do the raw strawberries. And because it is is much more challenging to do processing, did you know it's illegal to even chop a watermelon in half and sell it? Technically, same thing with, you know, um, if you process in Ohio, technically, if you chop lettuce, that's technically illegal too, because you have altered the raw state of the lettuce. You're supposed to have, you know, a certified um, kitchen. Um, So granted, you know, we get around it because uh, we have a couple ways of how we get around it, but we get around it because we say we cut it in the field at one time. We don't, you know, and again, technically we do. But again, if we were to do another single knife cut, that would technically be processing, and now Ohio would say that we're not allowed to do that. Mm. Wow. So, um, yeah, those are the top four that I would consider right there. And again, we can kind of deep dive into further those. And I'd love to. How yeah, I'm really yeah. interested. I'm Let, glad you wrote them down because I was trying to recall. Well, so I was going to mention regulation had you not, um, and 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 I was even even before we start to dig into some of these, a qu- question that I have is I think about if I were to own a farm, uh-huh. right? Is that if, if I was if I was regenerative, my my first guess would be, and I think you maybe answered this by talking about regulations and the deck stacked against you, but mm-hmm. let's say I grow a bunch of, of products, I have to get certifications, regulations, like you said, in order to sell them. You know, uh, but what what about like is there demand? Okay, so that's a great question. This, this stuff. Yeah, so for if I were to grow sweet corn, let's let's use let's use sweet corn. If I were to grow sweet corn, anyone can grow sweet corn and sell sweet corn. Uh, No one's going to shut them down. Let's say you're selling on a street corner in our local town. You'll be required to get a vendor license just because you want to sell sweet corn in the city. Now, Mm -hmm. um, that's the only license you'd have to get. If you were out in the middle of the county, typically no one's going to say a word. You can sell sweet corn. The moment you now cook that corn and sell it ready to eat, now you're talking regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be like one of the most popular things we do is our pickles. We sell a tremendous amount of pickles here on the farm. So we can sell cucumbers all day, but if we were to sell the pickles, they want us to get a, um, typically we'd have to get our recipe approved and then we'd have to pay for that. And they would send it out, take it, get that approved. Then we'd also have to have a certified kitchen to, uh, make that pickle in. And sometimes depending on what you're making, you might even have to get the label approved. Um, so again, there's multiple now hoops that you're jumping through for all of that. 
Mm. Um, and that's not even the business side. So the business side, I'm leaving completely out of this because most businesses have to, you know, get their LLC, file their taxes, totally. uh, you know, do the unemployment and all of those things. So I'm not even going to go there. I mean, that's any business. And again, a lot of those things are great because we want to keep a little bit of transparency and a little bit of, um, yeah, a cleanness there. Hmm. What I was going to say. So if we start with scale. Yes. And the, the, the kind of the scaling issue and. And I always use the, the, the example of you're going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, it's, it's probably the most basic item of food in the world, right? And you'd ask, like, what's, what's more efficient, to make one peanut butter and jelly sandwich or to make 10? Well, it's like, well, efficient's a different word than, like, what's going to take more time, right? But the, the time to take out the peanut butter, the jelly, to, to clean up the mess, to, to kind of make the sandwich, to get it into the bag, get the bags out. Get the, it's like making one sandwich is almost not worth your time. You know what uh -huh. I mean? Because you're gonna have to uh -huh. pull that stuff away. You, you've eaten the sandwich before the mess is cleaned up. But if you make 10 of them, you've got, to, so it's the same thought like you were saying with like a row of thousand or a row of a hundred, right? Uh -huh. And so if you're, if you're at small scale, how, how, like, how do you get around that? How do you get around? What are some of the ways, some of the levers we can pull to be a profitable farm uh -huh. at small scale? Well, I think the biggest thing is efficiencies. And I think that's the biggest thing that my mentors, Paul and Sandy, taught me um, was that, hey, Michael, there's a lot of ways you can do this. But this way we've done right here, this is the efficient, most effective and efficient way that we found. And follow it. Like mulching. I mean, let's just go on a little bit of a side um, a side thing here. They did a lot of mulching on their farm. They started with, you know, directly cutting fields onto wagons and then mulching that way. Then they moved to having a machine that would chop up round bales. But there's five reasons we, we mulch. One, it reduces disease. Second, it makes it cleaner for the, the team and the field to harvest so they're not slogging through the mud. Third, it keeps the weeds down. Fourth, it reduces erosion. Fifth, it feeds the earthworms. So again, that's just one of those principles. So again, I think the thing with these very small farms is to look at the principles that you know are effective for that. But I would also say, let's kind of back up a little bit. So let's say we grow a hundred foot bed of cucumbers. Okay, mm -hmm. that's what a small farm would do. Well, the problem with cucumbers is like literally you've got no cucumbers, no cucumbers, no cucumbers, and all of a sudden you have bushels of cucumbers that are coming out of your ears. <laughs> and the problem with that on a small farm is everyone doesn't want to eat 16 cucumbers in one day. They want one cucumber all summer long. But now the problem is, is the farmer's got all these cucumbers. So he sells a few at $3 and then he literally dumps the rest on the auction and makes like 25 cents each. So now he's lost money. So why we have moved so much here on our farm to value added is literally all those cucumbers come in at once. Okay. So we all as a team take three days and make a thousand jars of pickles. And then we sell those thousand jars of chick pickles for the next six or eight months. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so now we have literally captured that massive overage and we've kind of solved that kind of production hump. And so that where it comes down to having walk-in coolers. Um, but all of what I just talked about takes infrastructure, takes mm -hmm. um, know-how, takes all these things. It's very easy to literally just grow a cucumber, but it's a lot harder to, you know, and again, the recipes we use on our farm, a lot of people say, well, that's an amazing recipe. It literally probably came out of the ball book. A lot of the time, what the difference they're tasting is in really good, fresh food. Yeah. And so it doesn't need anything super fancy. A lot of people are like, well, I could never do that. No, yes, you could. Just grow and just process it and people love it. No, I think the biggest thing we have to look at right now is the changing consumer. 20, 30 years ago, yes, we would sell bushels of canning tomatoes. Now people want three pounds of seconds and they just want to make a batch of salsa, a little tiny batch of salsa for fresh. They would buy the salsa and they'll pay way more for the salsa. Um, um, and then they would, the, they'll get upset 
at buying a couple pounds of tomatoes, but they have no problem paying six bucks for eight ounces of salsa. That is so true. That's so smart. And and your example um, of and, and my guess is a lot of this stuff is just normal for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that and I think this is why you do what you do. There's a lot of people out there that are like, oh my gosh, I've been getting smoked on small or big operations because I was actually I have a friend that runs a large farming operation or larger not not mm-hmm. and, and he he does potatoes and rice mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, he he cannot I mean, he, over and over and over again he's frustrated by the demand for potatoes and how you know you could have a year where there's high demand which means he makes he makes more money and one year where there's not and then he loses money and it's it's kind of like sometimes it feels like it's not in his control mm-hmm. and I think you talked about this on the front end where you be a marketer first, be a business person second, and be a farmer third. And it's almost like that sounds sacrilegious. Well, well, but I'm so passionate. I was born for this in taking care of the earth and stewarding the land. And it's like, yeah, I want to, I want to gaze out on on the horizon and and see the light come up over the over the over the hills. It's like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's what I want to do. Hear the birds, hear the birds in the morning. But you need to be like at your computer, right, crafting a better logo because nobody <laughs> wants to buy your pickles. Yes. Even yes. like, or no one wants to buy your cucumbers because it's old news. And it's, it's, it's so, or, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. Or my day, the other day, I spent four hours trying to communicate with the Ohio unemployment because it was literally a nightmare to try to figure this, this paperwork out. But again, I'll get off that subject. Um, but yes, that is the problem is you, and again, people sign up for farming because they got these starry eyes. You know, I want to see a calf born and yeah. oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I want to milk and I want to give it to people. They don't realize, well, okay, so now we have to start getting inspected a, a class A dairy license. We've got to do this. We've got to test the milk. We've got to. Um, you know, now we have to inseminate the cows, which again is another whole process. Do we have to bring a, a bull here or do we do it AI and then having the window? So there's so much to this that a lot of people don't realize. Um, and, and it just gets over overwhelming. And w- here's the other problem too. And again, I don't, uh, we have been talking more about the efficiencies, but let's start talking to get inside the farmer's head, the small farmer's head is there's always too much to do on a small farm. The weeds are taking, it's too hot. The employees are complaining. The employees don't know what they're quite supposed to be doing. If you even have a team, mostly you're doing it by yourself. And so then you get into this death spiral where you're like, well, I need to go weed. So you go out and weed for five minutes, but then, oh my gosh, I really need to be selling these cucumbers that I'm actually weeding. And you end up getting nothing done all day because you're in this death spiral of uh, to-do lists and, um, and, and, and trying to run a small farm. Mm. That's also, by the way, uh, the routine of a mother, of a stay-at-home mom, just in case anyone was wondering. That's 100%. Yes. You go and to would, do the dishes and you're like, I need to feed the kids. And then you get nothing done all day. And I would say, you know, the mom has it way harder because, you know, you're dealing with living things that, you know, we're trying to turn into responsible adults at some point. And uh, we're just dealing with vegetables so or, <laughs> or cows. So. The, the, the example, though, even to finish the thought that I forgot to finish, of the cucumbers all coming at once. It's like it's funny and, and right, and we laughed, but but like it's that pain. is absolutely a problem. Oh yeah, and, and and that is what a lot of these farmers deal with is that I've got this huge harvest and the harvest is going to spoil. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and and uh, spoilage is a major like loss. You just lose money every time you have to throw something away. That's just how it works, right? You put all this time and all this effort in, and if the trucks that are coming to pick up your produce or you're shipping them off or however it's working. Right. This is maybe larger farms. If you're taking it to the the market, or you're you're going down to the farmers market, 
Whole Foods or I, again, like I don't even know the demand of, of selling to grocers as a small regenerative farm. Like that would even be another hurdle, right? Mm-hmm. Of like mm-hmm. getting, mm-hmm. you know, you have to you have to get into these stores. So that's where like that marketing business sense comes from. But man, that's a huge issue in coming up with value adds. I mean, that, well, that's like the nugget that I'm going to note. Yeah, value yeah. adds that you can you can take the food that you have. And you can convert it into other items that are that have a shelf life, right? Pickled, mm-hmm. yeah. pickling is pickling exists for a reason. It's been it's, it's been yes. around for generations because you can take these big harvests of cucumbers, mm-hmm. and it used to it started out being something where I need to eat these all year round, right? And and now it's 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 you can use that that same principle to sell them all year round. Um, any other value adds for small scale farming that 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 come to mind? Oh, it's an infinite. I mean, that's what I think I. That's what I love doing. I mean, the biggest thing is, let's say you're selling elderberries. Well, now you can make elderberry syrup. You can dry elderberries. You can take the elderberry leaves and turn them into a salve. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like you know, growing herbs. Like herbs, I think are one of the biggest value add. You can take uh, any mint you have left over, dry it, and turn it into a mint tea. Um, we we have carry milk in our store. Well, at the end of the day, sometimes if we want to keep it in stock, we have a few bottles that you know go past date. Well, we turn it into yogurt and we have now a thriving business of selling, you know, yogurt in the store as well. Um, the simple matter, again, of cutting a, a, a watermelon in half or a quarter, we, um, we sell so much of that. If, if we find our melon, our, water, our regular cantaloupe are going past, we literally just cube it and put it in a container. Um, we take radishes and do a zoodler, so a, a spiralizer, and then we make radish noodles. We do the same thing with squash. We sell more uh, zoodles wow. than we do squash in the store. So there's so many different things. I mean, the thing is, let's say you have a, um, a let's say you have a beef operation. Um, a beef operation, A, if you're selling directly to the packer, you're losing money, most likely. But you know that aspect of now selling, um, of processing and selling it by halves and quarters would probably be your first aspect. Selling by the piece would be the second. But then taking that cow, turning into hamburger, and opening a, a grass-fed, you know, uh, burger joint is probably your ultimate ad because the amount of money you're now making per pound of meat is incredible, and you only need like two or three cows. Mm-hmm. So there's infinite aspects out there, but again, the biggest thing, I think two things here is, people don't want a bushel of tomatoes, they want salsa. People don't want a half of beef, they want a burger that's ready to eat. Um, so meeting people where they are, I mean, that was the biggest thing we started in our farm, is we thought we were gonna be this production farm. And we realized, you know, people don't want these massive quantities of things, they want ready to eat. And that was something, there's a guy in town here, again, love him dearly, he is probably, you know, the top 10 uh, a business owner, so he's got a lot going for him. Very busy guy, very involved in the community. He's like, yeah, Michael, I just don't eat vegetables. He says, now if you made ready to eat food for me to take home an entree or a dinner, he said, we eat out every single night. Wow. wow. And so again, people have got to realize where our consumers are today and meet them where they are. And again, it's going to take a little bit more effort. But I would, what I would say is, you could grow a quarter to an eighth of what you were growing spend the um, the extra money you would have you know, by downscaling or just spend the money on a, a, a certified kitchen. And a certified kitchen doesn't cost that much. Um, and again, there's all sorts of ways, levels of saying, do you need a certified kitchen? I would say you technically probably do. It's, uh, it's a lot less stress to never be, to not be always worried about the government over your shoulder. <laughs> yeah. 
So again, because you can just do it out of your home kitchen and you can get away with it 90% of the time. But there will be the time the government will show up. So doing it right the first time is probably a good thing. Now, I'd say you can do a lot of testing in your home kitchen and donations. We've seen that work really, really well. Um, because again, it's free to give it away. It's not free to you. It's not okay to sell it. Mm -hmm. So we can start there and then we can go from there. Again, do the test batches of pickles. See if people love them. Mm -hmm. And I will say nine out of 10 times, people are going to be beating your door down for a second uh, jar of pickles. Mm, that's really good. I have a friend who um, has her own elderberry farm mm -hmm. and she makes her own elderberry syrup and she opened up a private membership association so she could sell the prepared jars without having to open up a commercial kitchen. So that's another way. So you become mm -hmm. a member and then you're no longer selling to the public. You're selling privately and everyone yes. understands what that contract looked like. And it's so easy. It's a one-time membership fee. Yeah. And that's actually part of the way that we have our farm set up. Um, I figured. Yes. Yes. That's great. Uh, labor. Let's talk about labor. Mm -hmm. how, how are we, how are we um, managing our labor force or ourselves and, and or our equipment, right? To, yeah. to be profitable. Small well, and large. I think the problem is, is for the last 50 years in the U.S., we have stressed higher education as the end-all, be-all, and as the sole goal of anyone. Mm. Um, and so then we have saddled many of our um, brightest that would love to be on a farm with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of debt. So A, they've spent four years of their best years where they could have been on a farm learning how to farm with learning skills, which a lot of times just aren't going to serve them super well on a farm. Now, granted, yes, the aspect that I have in, a background in you know, learning, knowing how to write a paragraph and knowing math, but we have today in 2023, we have chat GPT. And unfortunately, <laughs> it gets rid of 50% of my every, anything that I ever learned is literally now seconds away from my fingertips. Mm -hmm. um, so we have a populace that we have a um, stigmatized farming as, you know, not good for every, anyone. People, you shouldn't be a farmer. Um, the second thing, we've wasted time and money learning things which are now just infinitely uh, available. And we haven't learned hard skills. So it was interesting when my year at Polyface, when I interned there for a summer, um, there was 12 of us. And one of them, and the reason he really got in, again, he was actually a very nice human being. Um, but... He was a Yale grad and or Harvard grad. And one of the reasons I think he got there was like, oh my gosh, we've got a Harvard grad who wants to come, you know, become an intern at Polyface. He didn't know how to change a tire. And we had an argument. And I was like, I said, I made the thing that I made the point that learning how to change your own tire was in many aspects more important than a lot of what he would have learned at Yale. I'm because sure he loved that. oh, he loved that. <laughs> he and loved that. He did. And my wife is like, you're is about as subtle as an elephant. And, um, but I will say I won the argument because later that night I heard him asking my roommates to teach him how to change a tire. He wouldn't admit it to me. And his whole point was, well, you know, I'll just earn enough money to any time I need to call someone to come change a tire for me. They'll do it for me and I'll just sit in my vehicle. And I was like, you are right now at the pinnacle of knowing that we live in the middle at that point, Polyface didn't really have cell phone service. I was like, you may be trapped hours from cell phone service and you may need that tire changed. And if you knew how to do it yourself, now you're out of there. If you don't, you're eaten by the wolves and the uh, lions. Um, but anyway, yes, I am not the most uh, diplomatic at times, but I do tend to get the point across. Um, so yeah, there's that aspect of we are training for the wrong things. And I would say because regenerative farming also is on the, the cusp of what we're learning, we're not training, we're not teaching this in a classroom. 
I mean, most of the classrooms I've been in, this is the reason why I went to two classes in college and literally just said, this ain't for me. I can go read the books because the books I was reading in class were five to eight years behind what was actually being put out on the shelf of Barnes and Noble. And especially in 2023, what's on the shelves of Barnes and Noble is eight, 12 to 18 months old. And things are changing so fast that that's almost irrelevant. Mm, that's a great point. So, so to what should education be? Mm. Um, education should teach people to be curious, mm -hmm. teach people how to learn and then get the heck out of the way. Yeah. So education, man, there's, there's so many gaps there. And, 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 and maybe we touched on this and I missed it, but we're look, when it comes to like labor, like you have, um, I, I, what you Oh yeah. Staff. We were supposed to be talking about labor. We Far went to education. It's okay. It's okay. That was the next question. So they we're ahead of the game. Um, they but, do. but farm hands, staff, yeah. Um, employees or even yourself, if we're looking at labor, how can we manage labor to, uh, yeah. So let's get back to where we're supposed to be. And again, I'm going to shoot another sacred cow here. Um, but unfortunately we have gotten to the point where we feel like kids should be involved in all these after school curricular activities and sports and all of this. And our kids don't know how to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, one of the things my parents didn't allow me to do soccer growing up and I hated it and I was very upset about that, but what they did teach me and I just learned was how to work. And um, there is a skill, like we have some young kids and we call them our farm team as it were here on the farm that are learning how to work. They're young, they're 14, 15. And you know, after a couple hours, they're like starting to lag. And I'll be like, all right guys, come on, let's give it, get that second wind, get some, get some water in you and let's go at it. And we try to, you know, when they're young, realize that they're in that, that molding stage. But so many of the kids today, they just don't have what it takes. They just don't. And again, it's not about them. It's not, I'm not blaming them. I'm blaming the system which has conditioned them to A, not think physical labor is good. They want, the world wants us to pay for everything. The world wants us to pay for our sports. They want us to pay for our education. They want us to pay for our fitness. When really, if we were to literally be working after school, you went and worked five or, you know, a couple hours on a farm, you would A, get your gym in, you would learn new skills and you would learn how to work. Mm -hmm. So again, and again, I'm not, don't want this podcast to be about what's wrong with the world. But part of, what's, part of what's wrong with farming is what's wrong with society. Mm -hmm. And um, the two go hand in hand. And so again, like we on the, like right now we're in strawberry planting season. And we are also in the beginning of sports. So kids are lining up down at the school because I take my six-year-old because he is in soccer. And that is a choice my wife and I talk, discuss long and hard of like, what does that look like for us? Because we know the inherent problems with that. We know how we can get sucked in so easily. Oh, he's a star. Oh, he's really talented. He should be on the special team because they push that. And what we have to realize is, okay, yes, he's going to have some soccer. That's going to be fun. He's going to learn some skills with that. But that is not the purpose in life. The purpose in life is very different than being excellent at one small thing. Um, and we really want him to be part of that, to be well-rounded. Um, but, you know, again, if you look at all the hours and money that is put into that and where if we were training for learning how to work hard, I think the part of the problem is too, going back to the aspect of blue collar versus white collar, as we've gotten to the point of like the office job is the pinnacle, the blue collar job of working with your hands is looked down upon. Again, make sure you get the good, good enough grades so you don't have to go to trade school. Where right now, I'd say 90% of the people that I know that are making a white collar six figure plus income, our trades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
supply and demand, right? You got so many people that want that, you know, sit in a desk and type on a computer for some reason, job that makes six figure salary. Um, that there, there, you can only have so many jobs like that. You can, I mean, eventually those jobs run out. And, yeah. and how often do you see people saying like, I'm so ready to quit my nine to five. I just want to go like run a farm or oh, open a, harm, so a homestead. It's, so funny. Mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. the, it's like our generation uh, people in their early thirties are like, Whoa, this is not what we wanted. You know, but they can't afford to because they have a hundred thousand dollars in debt exactly. or they're too afraid to um, They have no skills. They don't know they, how to work. They don't know how to weld. They don't know how to plumb. I mean, like that was part of the thing is, is the, one of the first farms that I worked for, um, Eric, again, he was the guy who was a, a, a professor at Cornell, super smart guy. He couldn't do his own plumbing. He couldn't do his own electrical. He did not know how to install a greenhouse. Mm-hmm. And that cost him tens of thousands more than it could have if he had just had those basic skills. Um, and again, a lot of the skills I have, I just pick up. Yeah. And I've, I've gone and just begged and borrowed, you know, till I've gotten that. Now we're at the point in our farm where we actually typically hire a lot of that out because I just don't have the time. Because what we like to say is we're expert farmers. We farm, we're really good at it. And we now don't have time to, even though those are $100 an hour tasks, you know, because again, we're paying a builder $100 an hour, we're paying um, a plumber that kind of money. We don't have time to do that. Now, early years on the farm, <laughs> we could not afford that. And so those early years, we were doing everything ourselves. But as the farm became more profitable and we got busier and the sales flywheel started to take off, we got so busy that we couldn't afford to do those anymore. Well, that's a great point because you're basically saying there's a point where you can't afford to pay someone else to do it. So you need to spend your time learning Mm -hmm. the skill and doing it. But then there's also a a point where your time actually becomes so profitable, so much more important that you you cannot afford to not hire someone to bring them in because paying them $100 an hour is better than the time that it takes away from your efforts, which you know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. uh, a a, a phrase that it's been in my family for generations and we, a lot of generations of entrepreneurs and business owners and it's the launch takes the most fuel and i love what you brought up with so you think about a rocket ship right so just to help people understand this the launch of a rocket ship coming off the ground has like additional parts to the rocket just to get it off the ground and mm-hmm. up like the, the first, I don't know, 10,000 feet or however far it goes. And it drops those off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it uses like, I think it's like 90% of the fuel yeah. used for like the first mm-hmm. yes. 10% of the liftoff. It's, it's something like that. I don't, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. It's crazy. Yes. We're talking like tons and tons and tons, like, like units of weight, tons of rocket fuel or jet fuel just to get this thing off the ground. And it's like that with businesses, and I'm guessing it's like that with farms. And I like what you said, and I want to dig into that a little bit because it's actually really brilliant. But at the same time, it can be seen as, well, that doesn't really make sense for me because, you know, what, what do you mean? I'm, I'm going to make my kids work the farm, and then and then what? They just work the farm forever, and they don't ever have a life? And, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and what I would say is the launch takes the most fuel. And you're utilizing resources that are there and available to you, right? And, and then you use this term as the flywheel starts spinning. So the amount of effort it takes to, to, to kind of start spinning that flywheel or that, that grindstone or to start to, to start pushing that car, right? It's heavy. And as that car starts to move, it's easier to push. And as this car starts to move, as, the, as this farm starts to become profitable, there becomes more um, capital that's available to bring in staff to make the business or the farm mm-hmm. grow and be larger. And so the, I think like if I was to really spell it out, that's kind of what you're saying. And 
whether it's yourself, you're, you're using human capital, human resources that you have available to you, maximizing that resource to get off the ground. The launch takes the most fuel. And oftentimes, and I agree with you, and my family did this. We didn't have a farm, at least per se, but I, I did not grow up. Uh, and I did, I did grow up and, and, and do sports, uh, but it was, it was never, it, it never was more important than being a part of the family mission, whatever that was, right? Mm-hmm. And so we had, we had different kinds of businesses that we started. We had a produce market actually, that, mm-hmm. that I was a part of, and, and we, we had to grow vegetables and produce and things like this. And we homeschooled so that I was available, right, to go to work with my dad or mm-hmm. uh, to go to the office or to go and plant vegetables or to. What's know, the famous whatever. quote your dad always said? What's that? Don't oh, let don't let education get in the way, or don't let uh, school get in the way of the education. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, no, that's the, key. But but the um, wow, the, the, uh, you said that and it was so profound. But but you said it in a way, and I think you said it earlier, like hey, I get straight to the point. So I'm sorry that I'm elaborating so much, but I want I really want people to understand that it's not crazy. It's not crazy yeah. to think that that as a family you can you can work towards a common goal and a common mission, um, and that doesn't mean if you don't have kids. Well, well, what about uh, husband wife mm-hmm. well, if it's just you well know that you are you are at the smallest scale you're starting smaller but you also have the least amount of responsibility to other people least risk least responsibility but you do have the uh, the, the lowest amount of resources you possibly can so knowing that your launch is going to look different than others mm-hmm. if you have five kids and as they grow up and getting them involved exactly what michael's talking about um, I think is the, is the way that you can set yourself up and you have to have a vision of what it looks like to get to that next stage as that flywheel starts to turn and you have to be ready for it and you have to take risks because sometimes stuff works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you make the pickles and people go nuts and sometimes you make the strawberry jam and you know, no one wants it. it down the sink. Yeah. <laughs> we have put a few batches down the sink and it's, it's tough, but you're like, you know what? Okay. What did we learn from this situation? Yep. Never do that again. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, um, no, but you absolutely nailed it. Um, and I, what I want to say is that um, the launch is the hardest. And again, I think I said, you know, we're no longer doing the hundred dollar an hour tasks because we're doing, and again, I'm not saying that we're making a hundred dollars an hour because we're still far from it, but we have now seen the vision far enough ahead of where we're headed to know what we need to focus on that we're going to get to that next stage. Um, and again, I think that's important is really set that vision out of where you want to be. And my wife and I talk about that and that is changing now as kids get a little bit older. Um, and one thing I would say is if you are interested in being a farmer, being a farmer, if you have like a one, a five and an eight year old, it's probably not the best age to do that if you don't have the background experience, mm-hmm. because unless you have a really good support system, because that is a very tough age when you're, you know, tr- again, because being a mom's full time. It's not like you're going to be able to be a farmer and a mom. I really caution against that just because of the two. And I do not also want to be very careful that our kids don't grow up hating the, the business and hating the farm. Um, that's something my wife and I talk about. So Sundays for us are completely off farm. We're, you know, the farm's basically shut down and we do family stuff. Um, so that's another point to bring up. But circling back, the launch is the hardest. And there are days that you're, you know, throwing away what you just did. Like you tried something that just didn't work. And you're like, okay, we tried what didn't work. Um, now we know that one other thing that doesn't work and we can try something tomorrow that we hopefully will work. Mm-hmm. And back to the whole farming thing. I think, you know, I think if, if, if what I've said so far, if people could just summarize it down to it. The money is not in growing a, a head of celery. The money is in taking that celery and turning it into a, 
$8 or $10 juice cleanse mm-hmm. that someone's going to be more than happy to pay for. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's specific to a smaller farm or, or would you say with, with all with all farms well, that concept is applicable? So that's a great question. So if you're a production farm producing a thousand acres of head lettuce, I think that's a very risky business model to be in with. Um, those guys end up making money one year in five, but because they make enough money one year in five, that floats them across the border uh-huh. mm. um, because they don't own their distribution. If they own the distribution all the way to the, to the consumer. So let's say they had a farm that was really large, but also had a grocery store that stuff was sold at. Now you're in the ultimate business model. Um, but if you're only the farm, you're sitting on industry pricing. And so, um, you know, going back to the pricing that's paid. So I was sitting down with one of the, um, premier farm consultants on the West coast, organic amigo. Bob was his name. He's since passed on. Unfortunately. Um, I believe he may still be around. I just, I know he had cancer and like he wasn't available. So anyway, I can't be confirmed either way, but I wasn't able to get in touch with him when I was trying to, to confirm the story and get more into the details. But he said, he sat down with me at a conference. We had a conference and again, he just sat across to me and started chatting with me. And I had no idea who he was until he got up and introduced himself. And I'd heard his name because it's like, it's revered in our industry. I was like, oh my gosh, I just spat with him for an hour. Um, But he said, I work with celery farms. And so, you know, at the beginning of the day, they, you call into the, the buyer and say, hey, celery field is ready to pick. And they say, yes, $20 a case, we'll take 5,000 cases. Okay, so you send the crew out and they start picking. Well, about 30 minutes later, hey, you know, unfortunately, Farmer B called in across the street. He says celery, 5,000 cases at $19 a case. Can you do 18? Ooh, okay, fine. Well, this goes on to three o'clock in the afternoon when you have your 5,000 cases harvested. Now the, case, the, now the price is $11 a case or $12 a case because they've just played you to, off each other. Well, what they, you don't know is they needed all 10,000 cases, but they were just using the other farms to literally drag the price down 60%. Wow. And, and unfortunately, problem at $20, your profit's probably 3 to $4 a case. So now you're operating in the red. But because they kind of had you over a barrel, you now have to take the market price. Um, and so that's not good for anybody involved in the system except the buyers mm-hmm. and, and, the, and the distributors. Um, because here's the thing, when farmers are really cut tight on their corners, they're never going to do as good a job producing that food as if they were had plenty of resources. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have plenty of resources, your food is going to be more nutritious. It's going to be better cared for. It's mm-hmm. good. The farmer's going to be, um, have a better life so that he's going to be able to, you know, in the e- ecosystem, do better to his land and better to his, um, his, you know, the sustainability of everything going on there. Um, so, you know, that's part of this aspect of, you know, people say, you know, why am I paying so much in the grocery store for organic celery? Well, look at actually how much that farmer got paid and go find a farmer that's growing the celery and say, I want to buy directly from you. I know that, you know, it's going to be more expensive up front, but I'm also willing to put in some of the work myself because I, there's, I don't think there's any farmer that if there is a very eager, open-minded person that comes in and say, Hey, I want to come volunteer two, two days, two hours a week on the farm. I've got, you know, from this time to this time, I don't care what I'm going to do. You know, these are my limitations, but I just want to help you. And you know, I'll trade for produce. There are so many farms out there would be like, Oh my gosh, I will give you so much produce because they're so grateful for that. Most farms have a seconds or a farm grade section. I know we do. I know there's food that goes to the pigs. But if there was someone that came out to me and said, hey, I can't afford food. I want to work. I want to give a couple hours. They would go home with so much free food. They wouldn't be able to eat it all. Mm, wow. So this brings a burning question I want to make sure I ask because you kind of touched on it a little bit. But, and maybe some of these are obvious to some people, but they're not to me. What would be the major advantages of 
having a large scale farm when it comes to mm. profitability? Well, efficiency. So, I mean, and, and again, the efficiency on that goes to, there's a lot. So let's say like a large scale produce farm, like I, like Lady Moon Organics, they're in Pennsylvania and in Florida, they sell to Whole Foods probably primarily, uh, but they do, you know, 20, 30, 40 acres of summer squash. Um, so again, your cost per box is, you know, very low. The cost of production is, you know, again, you're dealing with, you're laying the plastic all day long compared to me hooking up the tractor, going out and laying literally two rows and then putting the tractor away. So I spent more time hooking the tractor up and taking that off than I did actually laying the plastic or planting the crop. So that is massive efficiency. But the problem is, is a lot of times the skills required to grow 30 acres of summer squash are not the same skills required to market that. So again, you're just gonna typically sell to a wholesaler. So because you're producing so much, you need to move so much volume, you need a very specialized person that can handle that kind of volume, which would be a wholesaler or a distributor. And so that's why they're gonna end up giving you a very low price because it's gonna have to go through the whole system compared mm -hmm. to if you're taking that same and going directly to the consumer. Um, it's interesting. Like I was talking to a farm um, a couple of years ago. They did the analysis with a, a really good financial analysis out of Pennsylvania, and they realized that they sh their 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 business was best to shut down the CSA, which was where their CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture, where they were selling directly to uh, consumers, and it was to actually go and grow 12 acres of kale and sell it to Whole Foods, as well as other crops. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we happened to have that conversation after our very hard freeze had frost tinged all that 12 acres of kale and it now was no longer saleable to Whole Foods because of the requirements of Whole Foods. Because again, Whole Foods standards is, you know, no brown tips. Well, if they were selling that to a CSA, that would have been fine. I mean, the CSA would have been like, hey guys, this week's kale is super sweet but it got a little damaged by the, the the cold. All you have to do is pinch off the ends or just eat it as is because the brown is you know not causing any problems. It's, you know, it's still edible. So are bigger farms more efficient? Yes, in some aspects, but no in other aspects. Now, if you're dealing with grain or you're dealing with um, some of these other things, some of the larger farms are more efficient. Unfortunately, the, as you get larger, you also start running into opportunity cost where let's say you have to harvest a thousand acres of, um, of rye. Well, uh, or actually let's do wheat because wheat is a little bit more challenging. You have to be a very specific uh, uh, harvest window for that, especially some of these heirloom ones. Well, if you don't have enough tractors and enough combines to harvest all of that at the right time, you can run into where it gets, let's say you have a six hour window before it starts raining. Well, if you don't have enough equipment to go harvest that, now you've wasted all that. So I think what the thing is, is that there are efficiencies at all scales, but there's also problems at all scales. Mm -hmm. And while yes, some farms may, the larger they get, be more efficient, there also is much less efficiencies and those inefficiencies are magnified at a massive exponential rate because mm -hmm. of the size and the scale. It also sounds like while there's some, I mean, the term economies of scale is, is a term for a reason, right? And then, mm -hmm. but like you think about th this example of um, needing to meet standards and guidelines, and then also, hey, because I'm harvesting all day long the same crop, I have to go through a wholesaler, which binds me to uh, selling through lower prices. Mm -hmm. it, it's like much lower prices. There's advantages to 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 a large scale farm, but it sounds like the disadvantages of a large scale farm are maybe the advantages of having a small farm. And so it's it's almost yeah. like. 
I guess what I was trying to get at is which one's better than the other. And, and I, I think what maybe we've come to the conclusion is at this point is that they both have their advantages and disadvantages. And yeah. um, anyways. Well, well, no, to your point there is that let, we just had an outbreak of called the Great Yellow Jalapeno Crisis of mm. 2023. I don't know if you've heard about this. Whereas people were growing jalapenos and they're all yellow. They weren't a green jalapeno. And unfortunately, the consumer wants a green jalapeno. Now, if you're growing 20 acres of jalapenos and you have yellow jalapenos, you're in trouble because mm -hmm. you had just spent all that money. But if you're a small farmer and you're growing 12 different peppers, okay, yellow jalapenos. Don't have jalapenos today. You're going to have the 11 other ones that are doing fine. Sorry. Uh, what were you saying, Liz? No, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And also, I didn't even know yellow jalapeno existed. I feel like has it gone bad or is it just yellow? Like is it still it's just, edible? And I'm actually not 100% sure if it's just not a jalapeno, if it ended up being some other uh, hot pepper. Mm. I've just seen multiple posts and there's a lot of chatter online mm. about it right now. Thankfully, we spent we spent good money on our seeds and we got really good seeds and so ours are all nice and green and plump. <laughs> but I know that out there several people a lot of people are seeing these yellow jalapenos. Based on what I've learned today, it sounds like I'd be making some yellow salsa. Pepper, you know, yellow, yellow pickled salsa. chilies or yeah, yeah, yeah. Something yeah. Like that. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Or a yellow hot sauce. I mean, if it's a hot pepper, yeah. why not just turn it ferment it and turn Look it into that. a Yes, hot That's sauce. A great idea. No, but what I was just going to say is like one of the things that always trips me up is, and, and this is where this whole thing started, is because I shared on my account, it was all these, um, it was the milk section at Kroger. Uh -huh. All these gallons of milk for like two, three dollars. Gallons of milk for two uh -huh. or three dollars. I uh -huh. pay um, over six dollars for a half gallon, so over twelve dollars for a gallon of raw milk. Uh -huh. Happily, I'll happily pay that. Yeah. But the conversation was like, well, we get confused because the examples that we see in the store are so dang cheap that then we don't understand why buying from our local farmer is 10x or 3x more. And so I think I, what I would like you to do is one, point me out where I'm wrong because sometimes my brain goes to like, well, subsidies somewhere up the line are making this cheaper and then this is how this is happening. But then I always get pushed back on like, well, I'm a dairy farmer and I'm not Get, I'm not benefiting at all from those subsidies. So how in the world uh -huh. are we selling, quote, grade A dairy for $3 a gallon at the grocery store? How in the world are those farmers making a single penny? Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great question. Um, and uh, there's so much to unpack here. Did you ever heard of the, the U, a Yugo car? I think it was. It's old, but I have heard of it. Okay, and they were literally they from the moment you drove them off the showroom they broke down. <laughs> so I mean contrary they were, to the implications of the name, you don't yes. know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so then again, what would you say your favorite brand out there is? I mean, to me, a Toyota Tacoma. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen that video that the um, the car guys, the European car guys, uh, what's that show? Um, Top they Gear. Did, Top Gear, gosh, they basically tried to destroy a Toyota Tacoma. They doused it in the in the ocean. They dropped it. They put it on top of a building that they were destroying. So to me, you've got the Yugo, and then you got the Toyota Tacoma. To me, obviously, the the milk in the store is that Yugo. I mean, it's barely 
Basically, it's getting in the, in the door. It's chalk milk, as we call it in our household. Um, and then you've got the teratocoma, which is that, you know, beautiful, thick. It's got like two inches of cream on top of it. Um, and it's live culture. So you can taste the difference. You can taste the grass. And you can taste the flowers in that, that raw milk that you're getting in your herd share. So to me, it's like, again, obviously, yes, a Yugo is way cheaper than a teratocoma. And I'm more than happy to pay the money for a better car because I know it's going to be from point A to point B. And I'm not going to break down half the time. And I think we also have to look at the aspects of our bodies. Do we want our bodies to go from point A to point B without breaking down? And that's why I'm going to always go for the raw milk. So the difference in what you're getting. Again, it's between like paper money and gold. Paper money doesn't have anything to back it up and gold, you can blowtorch that stuff. Even if it melts, you can still gather up the scraps, turn it in, and they're gonna give you mega money for it. So the difference in quality, I think, is the aspect there. I think another aspect is in in just the, the grocery store wars. Um, I mean, there's so much information out there about what actually is in the grocery store and how grocery stores make money. Grocery stores make money by getting you in the store with with basically lost liters, and a lost liter is that $2 gallon of milk so that you will buy what they make massive money on, which is the chips and the salsa and the, the wine and even the bottled water. They make mega money on bottled water uh, because, again, it's the same water you get in your tap typically, and they charge, you know, dollar anyway, lots of money for that. So they're selling stuff at a loss to get you in the store so that you buy these other things, and it's a science. They, I mean, one of the funnest um, book series I've ever read was one by a name called Paco Underhill. And it's this obscure thing called retail science. And he was the guy that pioneered putting uh, cameras in grocery stores and watching people shop and figuring out what they were doing. He has a book called um, What Women Want. And he has Why We Buy. And it's literally a psychology into the female shopping mind. And again, it's fascinating exactly because it's very different than the male shopping mind and what guys go in for. They go in and get something and women want your beautiful music and they want, you know, a good experience. And again, that was something that makes, but when you start backing that up to the retail and the psychology of shopping, that comes directly back to the $2 milk. Again, to get the woman in the store, she need, knows she needs these staples for her family. And so she, oh, 99 cent eggs, $2 milk. And unfortunately, those are two of the, the things that are make the biggest difference in your family's health because a good quality egg, wow. it just has so much nutrition in that. And with milk, again, the amount of nutrition in that as well is mind-blowing. Um, so again, there's that aspect of they're selling it for under what they, they, they produces. I think the other thing we have to look at too is, is the scale, is they're paying farmers basically slave labor late wages to produce a product which is then immaculated with tens of thousands of other cows fluid and put into a bottle and they are doing this on tractor trailer scale 5,000 gallons at a time so it's going to be way more efficient um and you're going to saying okay so it's way more efficient but again it comes back to that aspect is it good quality or is it not um, I mean, again, these large farms don't know the, the name of their cow. And I think the other quality we have to look at is the cell counts. And this is something, again, you should have my friend Ben Beichler on, who he started our 
10 years ago, he started the consulting company with me that now is growing farmers. And he went off to be a dairy farmer two years later. And he does a fabulous job, but he can speak intimately to the quality of their milk um, and their cell counts. And like, when you have a very small farm, you can look at the udder and say, oh, Bessie's udder's a little off today. Let's hold her milk aside because maybe she has, you know, a touch of mastitis. On a large scale farm, they, again, it just goes into the vat. Um, and so, and again, there is some different things out there that they can test and things like that. But that is part of the reason why they have to, you know, ultra pasteurize it is to make sure that nothing untoward gets into the, the milk supply. I mean, I remember milking with friends of ours. They're doing a hundred cows and we would drop the milk into the gutter. They get covered with manure. Well, we'd wipe it off and stick it back on the cow because we know that the next stage they were going to, you know, pasteurize it. So it was safe. But if you're a small family farm, I mean, again, okay, that... A, there's no manure before you bring the cow in. Second, your, the place is spotless and clean. And then if anything were to happen, you're stopping, you're taking it apart, you're cleaning it, and then you're maybe you're going to do it later on. So I, at those aspects right there, I think you also have to look at the quality of um, a feed too. I mean, if you're using a telehandler to pick up a ton of silage at a time and dump it into a mixing wagon, which is then going to go feed the cows, that's very different quality than hand selecting the bales of hay, which you're going to do the sniff test. Is this good? Oh, this is great. Hey, there's no, um, no uh, staleness or, 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 uh, or disease or anything in that hay. Um, and then that's what they're eating today. So again, I think those aspects, I don't know if I kind of made sense at all in what I just said here, but I think those are the three ones. A, the quality of the product you're getting is infinitely different. Two, the, what the farmer's getting paid versus what the, um, what the, the, the cost of, you know, of the lost leader mm -hmm. is that they're not making money on the milk. It's literally to get you in the store. Mm -hmm. And then third is just, you know, the efficiencies of scale, which also tend to bite you because those farmers were not looking at the hidden cost of the, um, the red tide. We're not looking at the hidden cost of the Chesapeake Bay, which no one can farm mussels from now because there's so much pollution there yeah. as well. And I think, again, I typically don't tend to dive into that one too deeply because there's so many other good ones to go after, I feel like, and the ones that people don't realize. I feel like the environmental aspects of large industrial farming is something that we have kind of like almost beat to a dead horse at this stage. But that is actually out there and it's causing problems. On our own farm, we're seeing this. We have toxic levels of chloride, iron, and aluminum in our water. Now, not toxic to us as humans, we can still drink it, but toxic to the plants. All those are salts, which are causing basically our tomatoes and our things in the greenhouses to literally, um, you know, the yield is going down, our disease pressure and our insect pressure is going up. And this is one of the, the reasons why when I sent those samples, I'm like, oh yeah, your water is terrible. So we are going to have to, and the reason is, is 30 to 40 to 50 years of conventional farming, dumping those salts into the aquifer, which we're literally now pumping back up, trying to feed our organic produce. Mm. The, the loss leader concept is um, a little bit new for me, but I love it. And I think it makes a lot of sense because if you think about what brings somebody to a grocery store, well, you might be shopping for snacks because it's the weekend, but like, what do you need from the grocery store, right? Mm -hmm. What's going to ensure that you're going to go grocery shopping? Not chips, not, you know, ice cream, like not uh, soda, not bottled, well, maybe bottled water at this point, but like yeah. you're going to the grocery store because, you know, I need milk, I need eggs, I need flour, 
I need butter. I need I need uh, I need a rotisserie chicken. That's five ninety nine at, at Walmart. No, at Costco. It's it's crazy. And and as you're shopping around, you, you know, if you're there, especially if you're with your kids, and they're like, "Man, I want the you know, I want the unicorn you know cookies." It's like, you know, or I want the you know the Disney character uh, mac and cheese, or I want the. It's like mm-hmm. this is this is exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right, it's exactly what's happening, and it makes sense because yeah, you can go in and get a gallon of milk for like three or two ninety nine, and and if you see the news, like inflation's crazy, milk is up to almost three dollars, and, and eggs are going up to like five fifty or six. It's like why aren't they talking about the inflation that's happening to chips? Uh huh. Uh huh. The bags are shrinking. It's like you might get the, like yeah. six ounces of potato chips, and you're paying like eight dollars. Uh, that's what I said on my thing. I was like, "Listen, everyone complaining about raw milk prices better never be buying a bag of chips for five ninety nine. I'm and it's, sorry. It's interesting no. because right, we're 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 nourishing ourselves with things that are that are being so hyper commoditized, so so um, just cut to the bone from like a like cost point of view, because you know they're they're like a they're like bait almost, right? Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. That actually is what it is. I mean, we go to Costco probably twice a month or maybe once a month depending on how fast we run through things Um, because we actually now buy things from there for our production in the store because actually it's a great place to get organic flour Um, um, but it's one of those things we have the shopping list and then we end up in the chip area well you know those cherry barbecue chips were really good last time Um, and you just and then you realize oh my gosh I literally just spent $40 and most of it was air Uh, (laughs) I'm guilty of it. And so I know if I'm guilty of it and I know better, I know everyone is. Um, I mean, it's the latte. It's the $8 at, you know, at, 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 at Starbucks. It, you feel better after you come out of Starbucks because the music, I mean, that's a, again, going back to that retail science. And here's the thing. You have the industrial food system, which is spending billions of dollars figuring out how to get you in there to buy their stuff. And they got a small family farm who's literally just trying to figure out how to pay for the feed for their two dairy cows or one dairy cow or keep the mastitis away. And so you you just have to realize the, there's no comparison. We're comparing, you know, apples and oranges. Yeah, the industrial food system is absolutely first a marketer, then business, then pr- food preparation. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, the, yeah. the framework has been there. Oh, right? they're like, hello. It's like Michael's saying this and the framework is there and he's like, hey, like in, in case you didn't know. Yeah. This yeah. is how everybody else is doing no, it. No, I think that's brilliant. That That is uh, that's super smart. I, I, I want to change gears here a little bit. I want to get back into farming, but specifically in the technology in farming. Mm-hmm. And this is a question I love bringing up because um, it's – I feel like it's not super clear, at least not clear to me, but the question is, where do we draw the line in innovation when it comes to technology in farming? Mm, yeah. You know, there's that's a fabulous, because there's so many ways we could take this. I mean, we're looking at bioengineering, we're looking at aut- robot autonomy and farming, we're looking at, obviously now on the marketing side, we're looking at AI and just, you know, communication and all that. So there's so much here. Obviously, when, to me, technology is great, and it's absolutely essential when it comes to doing some of the rote tasks of uh, production. Mm. But when we start messing with life forms, mm. that's where I get incredibly scared and back off. So, um, you know, when we start, you know, genetically modifying what's going on, I mean, we just came from a, a pandemic that literally changed the course of our world because someone was messing with genes that they shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. And we think that's good to keep doing. 
Um, I mean, people were warning about this for decades. It's like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Oh, you did it? Now you just messed everything up. And we didn't like go back and think about it. What did we learn from this? We should take more shots? No, don't mess with the genome. You know, don't mess with the code. Um, it's a life form. So I, I, that aspect scares me. And again, I, there's people out there that will argue this every day. Well, you know, we can't feed the world. Yes, we can. Food production is not the problem. The problem is food distribution and politics. As politics and uh, basically warlords waste more food than anything. That's the problem. We have, if you look at the pounds of food produced, the pounds of food we need, we got plenty. Um, so it's not, we don't need that for that. Uh, but, you know, autonomous robots that are using lasers to kill weeds, I'm all for it. Obviously, we need to have some sort of kill switch in there so they can't attack us or anything. <laughs> but uh, I have farmer friends that are certified organic farms that are using uh, robot weeders. And they said it's amazing. They pay by the acre. Um, so their cost of weeding is very well set up. But again, the robots work 24 hours a day. Farmers can't do that. We're not built that way. We're meant to be farming or, or doing things during the light hours and sleeping during the dark hours. That's typically how the, the, uh, the human body is set up. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of us can't do that with third shift and all that kind of stuff. But that is something that to me is exciting technology. I mean, the marketing, the aspect that I today, I needed to get a product description to one of our, another one of our teams. Um, and I was able within six minutes to do something that would have taken me 30 minutes before because of using, um, you know, AI to kind of, what are the things I'm not thinking about? Oh, yes, I do need to talk about that and that and that in this product description. Um, so that is a super exciting to me. Um, but, you know, there, there has to be limits too. Um, but I would, I'll say that, again, it comes back to that um, curiosity is try to, you know, learn across the whole aspect of what's out there because I'm constantly trying to figure out what's new in our industry and looking at what the possibilities are. And again, a lot of people are like, well, it's going to take my job. Yeah, get another job. And again, I don't want to be harsh, but what I'm going to say is I don't want people to think, well, you know, I'm a copywriter and this is going to replace me or I'm a someone with a hoe. To me, there's way better things out there for you as an individual than spending your days hoeing the fields. Um, and, and again, on our farm, if we can replace something, we're going to move someone into something else typically because AI will never replace the human mind and still a lot of even the autonomy out there for like harvesting can't replace the human feel and the human touch. Mm -hmm. There's just something about how the hand works that we cannot replace. Um, so there will always be place for humans on the farms. And I don't want people to be scared that technology is going to take their job. Um, it may shift how they do their work and it may, we have to, we have to change our expertise. I think that one of the things with, uh, you know, the the education system is it siloed people into these very small specific things that they do and to me education should be learning teaching you how to learn and teaching you how to adapt in critical thinking so that you can oh this can't work now i'm going to move over to this um yeah i dig that i think there was probably at one point people that were seeing these things called tractors come out and they were like oh well, yeah wait a second I take care of the, the, the livestock that does this. And, you know, I, I'm the only person that knows how to, uh, the blacksmith that knows how to take care of the, the, the dredge or, or, or the, or the, or the trial. It's like, yeah. Or, or, you know, now we're like tractors. Well, of course you use tractors. Yeah. And so, uh, but those people have jobs. They're just helping support another, maybe they have to drive the tractor, right? It's like, Hey, chat GPT doesn't do it all. You have to have a you human have input and, yeah. uh, and learning how to put in the proper inputs to generate the, the output that you're looking for is in itself a task, yeah. right? So I dig that. Well, I mean, think about when the cars came out, think about the poor horses. They were out of a job. <laughs> 
But I mean, you have to think about this, you know, technology is going to move forward. And, and, and again, this is one of those, you know, this goes back to the Jim Collins. Um, it's amazing how all these things are interconnected here. But Jim Collins talked about how Kodak went from, you know, this massive brand to literally almost nothing overnight because they failed to adapt and move forward. Mm -hmm. And I think as, you know, farmer, as anybody, we have to realize what's going on there. Use what is good and then discard what is bad. And obviously you just saw my opinion of what part of AI and what part of technology is not so hot and what we shouldn't be working, uh, messing with. Um, but there is, there is to me, there is an aspect there. It's a bright future and a lot of this. I mean, it's amazing what's coming out there. I mean, this technology of steaming, um, it's, it's basically, it's been around for a while and it's going to come back. But where it is, is we basically take these big hoses and these big, uh, like, uh, manifolds and you basically steam the top couple inches of your soil it gets rid of disease it gets rid of insects it gets rid of weed seeds and then after you take that off you end up introducing life back into there with typically like some prebiotics and things like that but it makes a massive difference for the farmer and i was talking to my friend ray who's one of the best farmers i know and he was saying yeah michael i thought i was going to do this every single year but once i eliminated a lot of these problems they just haven't come back. Wow. So once the weed seeds are gone, if I'm not bringing new weed seeds in, I don't have any more issues. And so it's one of those things, like that's technology that a lot of people were poo-pooing. You know, in my circles, well, it's not organic enough. Again, going back to that sustainability aspect, Ray has a way more sustainable life because he's using the technology than someone out there with a hoe who's out to midnight every night because they just can't get all the weeds killed. Mm. Mm, that's good. As we wrap up here, uh, Michael, is there anything you, that you wanted to address or discuss that maybe we haven't touched on at this point? I mean, I think my biggest thing was I think we've gone a lot of ranging kind of, and again, I tend to just be short and distinct and to the point. I think there's a lot of good meaning people out there that are just trying to make the world a better place and they're just misguided. Mm -hmm. So again, I may rail on this and that and against this, but again, it's not like I have infinite hate for those people or you know dislike them. Again, I have a lot of conventional farmers that are friends. I have mm -hmm. a lot of government people that are friends. I interviewed one of the USDA guys, first statisticians on our podcast not too long ago, we had a great chat. Um, you know, these people are doing in their area what they think is the best, and I think that's great. I have a different opinion. I have had a lot of a different, my, my, again, my childhood was different. My, uh, how I see the world is just a little bit different and that's gonna just make different of how I'm going to move forward in life. Um, I think the biggest thing with farming that people don't get is it's not about production, it's about using everything you get to the max. Um, again, so that person, you know, using you know, just one cow, turn that into cheese, you're probably doubling or tripling your revenue. Um, for us here on the farm, again, taking that squash and turning it into the zoodles made it way more profitable mm -hmm. for us. I mean, squash blossoms, they're the little tiny flowers. We, if when we were selling those at farmer's markets, we made more money off squash blossoms than we did the squash. Wow. So typically it's not about, hey, if I'm gonna try to do this, I can only do it this way. It's about thinking about it, this different a problem from a different angle and that's where the money is. Mm. And that's what we've seen through our just growth of our businesses and the work people we work with is thinking about it differently and realizing your farm is a business and trying to say, okay, if I was running this as a business, how would that work? Unfortunately, you know, farming has weather to deal with, and that is another one we never really dived into, um, but that is a huge challenge as well. But when you do tend to move from just production, and, and one thing I like to, I've started to say is, it's not a, farming is not about producing product. 
Farming is about feeding our community. And when we think about it as a feeding our community, it really opens it up from just growing a squash, taking that squash and cooking it, and now feeding it to someone in our community. And that's where I think is where real food production or real farming is, is more of that feeding. I love that. That's outstanding. Michael, thank you so much for coming on here, man. Before we, before we move on, where can people find you? Where can people find your podcast? Where can people find, if they ever wanted to bring you in a talk or, and or you, you have a consulting um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, operation as well? Where can people find you? Yeah, so we have the thrivingfarmerpodcast.com. They can go there. There's a couple hundred episodes now and everything from all sorts of things. <laughs> so we've got a wide ranging over there as well. Um, we have growingfarmers.com. That's more of our education side. I do very little consulting now, but we do have a membership where we do kind of group um, coaching and mm-hmm. that there. And we have tremendous amount of resources over there. Uh, if they want to check out our farm, it's farmoncentral.com. Um, and again, follow us from near afar again our goal is just to a we're looking at changing our local community and how they eat um, because we know with true food comes true health and um, on the national scale and a world scale our goal is to um, you know really decrease the amount of five-year farmers Mm -hmm. we want to see you know the 10-year the 15-year thriving farmers is where we're at and so that's that's our goal there love that that's outstanding well this was an outstanding conversation I'm like I have like notes because I feel like some of these principles apply beyond just farming. Cause I think that's, that's reality, right? A lot of this stuff is, yeah. mm. uh, are some really kind of inherent truths of life uh, that we kind of discussed today. So thank you so much, Michael, for coming on and sharing some of your yes, wisdom. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And with that, Michael Kilpatrick, the one and only has left the virtual chat. Mm-hmm. Could have been in person. I, Next time. I'm bad with geography. I, w- I had in my head that they, they were uh, southeast. They're southwest. We're also southwest. But yeah, he, 45 minutes north of us, which is awesome. We're definitely going to take our little camera and go. Next time. Visit. I loved this episode. <laughs> that was a long pause. I just was like, how do I say this? It was like, I was starting to like sound smart and I can't. So <laughs> outstanding stuff. The... This idea of farming and being profitable is constantly talked about. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I never have answers. It was nice to have someone that, that uh, is not only doing it, but also helps people learn how to do it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I dug it. Yeah. I really like when he said um, the same struggles that you see in farming are the very same struggles in our society. Mm-hmm. So we think this is like unique to farms or regenerative farms, but it's like, it's a systemic problem. It's not unique, yeah. And I also love his ability to so succinctly say like, hey, match your consumer. Mm-hmm. Your consumer isn't ready for this giant harvest of XYZ. Prepare half of it. Mm-hmm. You're going to make more on that half. And then you're also still going to be able to sell them your food and have you know, less labor involved there because you're not preparing it and diversify. If yeah. I, And then the other piece that I thought was so freaking brilliant was there are efficiencies at every scale, but then there are also downfalls to every scale. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about the however many acres of kale. He was it's like if you're a small farm, the big farms have struggles that may be more challenging than what you're dealing with. If you're the big farm, right, the small farm's got some things that... Yeah, it's easy to look and be like, man, they just they have it easy over there. Totally. They, they don't know what we're doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I, I, I like that a lot. That's that's great. Some of the challenges of profitability, just kind of as a reminder to me, right? There's this idea of education, 
right? The science of it, he was saying, the regulations, the funding for that education, the, the labor, right? He was talking about, man, get your kids in the game, get your family in the game, and this idea of scale, right? And there's this, this idea of value add. It's like, man, you need to be adding value to, the, to what you're selling, it's so easy to get caught up in the 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 kind of like fantasy of I'm growing this 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 crop or I'm harvesting this beef or I'm doing this this I'm 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 this, this dairy these eggs and I either have to sell them just crazy expensive because of the waste that I experience or the it's like he's he's saying no 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 provide more value than that and I, I like that approach this idea of starting out as a marketer as a businessman and then finally a, a third a farmer right third and i think that's that's an interesting concept to to consider when you're looking at being a farmer yourself right so um yeah that's great any other thoughts no i loved it i loved the uh, the whole conversation yeah, look forward to, to connecting with him again in the future definitely look him up if you're if you're you know a farmer and you want to you know chat with him i'm sure he would or if you're local to us here in cincinnati go hang out yeah for sure In other education news, we have things that, you, that can educate you. And this is the part of the episode where we talk about those things, because that's what we do here. We have education for you, for your kids. You can find that on homegrowneducation.org. We have a shop, shopth.com. I feel like com. I should take over this segment. Go ahead and take it over. Because I feel like sometimes you take a long time to get an ex- it, it, the thoughts out. This is what's called an outro, where mm. we have just dedicated two hours of our time. And now we're telling you how you can connect with us, which mm. we actually love doing. My first thought is, number one, we haven't said this in a long time, but all of our podcast listeners, we absolutely are so grateful that you guys show up every week mm-hmm. because you guys show up every single week. And it always blows us Someone away. Someone is. When we see, stop with the attitude. You always act like this podcast is so small. This podcast is ginormous because of all these amazing people in this community. I just said someone. I didn't say it like. No, but you're always a little belittling about it. It drives me nuts. <laughs> but I just, I'm, I'm saying, I'm so thankful for everyone who shows up every single week whenever we publish a new episode. This, it's not easy to have a podcast that you drop weekly. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do like seasons or they take breaks or they're like, oh, the podcast took a moment. We've been going and we haven't stopped. And we get to have these conversations and share them with people, not just so me and Joey can eventually open a farm someday because we all know that's where this is going. Uh, Maybe. But so that you in your journey, in your stage of life can glean wisdom from these amazing guests or can hear the mistakes that Joey and I are making and you can glide right past them, right? That's the whole goal here. So number one, thank you for listening and being here and being a part of this outro. Number two, yeah, we have stuff that we love to share because we've poured our heart and soul into it. So homegrowneducation.org has our has our like educational resources or meal plans or what's for dinner, what's for breakfast, homeschool curriculum. If you're gearing up for the next year, get yourself, get your kids the, the workbooks and mm. you print each lesson and it's, it's right there. Teach your kids about raw dairy, all the things that, you know, check off the education piece and the labor piece right there. Homegrowneducation.org. And then um, the, the stuff we're excited about at Hazelmeyer Goods, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have this new shop where we are trying to like bridge the gap between producer and consumer and sell amazing, beautifully sourced everything from coffee and tea to sourdough products to um, kitchen tools, kitchen to- tools and 
on soap. my favorite lard dish soap. Mm. You know, we're doing it all. So we're doing that much. We're doing that much. But yeah. And more to come. More to come. You can find that those goods, those products at shopdh.com. The coffee and tea is ridiculously good. Like ridiculously good. If you like coffee, if you're a coffee connoisseur, not even just I like coffee. Like if you like Starbucks, this might actually, we're in different realms here. Okay. We're talking about premium roasted, like specialty coffee. This is not Starbucks coffee. Very different. Third wave, if you will. The tea, ridiculously good. So good tea. Uh, Chai, the Earl Grey lavender. Mm -hmm. So good. I actually had some iced. I'm about to go make myself an iced Earl Grey. Lavender, Earl Grey, lemon fog situation. Mm -hmm. Just now, like while we were on this podcast, I had one. Yeah, I'm about to go make one. If you'd like to learn more about us, if you want to hear more from us, you can find us. We are on social media. We have a YouTube channel that's on its way. There, you can find these podcast episodes, or some of them, most of them. We are now uploading podcast episodes onto YouTube. Uh-huh. At Homegrown underscore education. YouTube. We are creating, and we have been hard at work, crafting YouTube videos that are just as inspirational and educational for you all that are also going to be starting to drop on that channel. And they will not be two hours long. They will not be two hours long. You're welcome. You're welcome. Or I'm sorry, depending <laughs> on the scenario. Uh, you can find us on Instagram. I'm at Joey Hazelmeyer. Elizabeth is at Liz Hazelmeyer. You can find us both at homegrown underscore education, primarily Elizabeth, to be honest with you. Uh, but if you had a message for me on there, I people message it. people say hey Liz and Joey and I just I'm like hey I'm right here <laughs> it's good stuff I answered the DMs so and until next time that's a wrap